Having a killer watch takes any situation to the next level. If you're missing that sleek, ultra-clean piece to level up your life, Movement is your new favorite watch brand. And Movement is going all in with a huge Valentine's Day sale, so you can give someone special the gift of great style that reminds them of you every day. Level up your style game with the fresh, modern designs of a Movement watch. Save 20% on your best Valentine's Day gift ever at MVMT.com code SLEEK. That's MVMT.com code SLEEK. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or... House cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain. He's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win! Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Gary Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a fellow sports business classroom alum. He's a regular on the program. He's also the host of the Sense and Scalability podcast, a co-host on North Station Hoops, which is a podcast focused on the Boston Celtics. He's also a writer uh, at uh, Premium Hoops, Scott Levine. Scott, thanks so much for for coming on. Oh, you you know, I couldn't pass up our annual uh, March slash April Celtics breakdown. Um, It's April this year because the schedule has been pushed back, but uh, we're going to try to live up to previous Celtics episodes because um, they're some of my favorite podcasts to do in general, out, you know, outside of, uh, even outside of this podcast. Yeah. The, uh, this is the third, this will be the third straight year we've, uh, we've done this podcast and actually I was looking back and it was interesting. I, I noted that, uh, we, we did the, the Boston Celtics episode basically a week before the NBA shut down for the coronavirus last year. So we just barely got that in. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this, this should be a fun exercise. We're going to be talking all things, Boston Celtics, but, uh, but first Scott, uh, I know we, we had discussed before recording that we were going to talk about the devastating news to one Jamal Murray of the Denver Nuggets, uh, a torn left ACL. And, uh, of course he had been dealing with, with some knee issues and had missed the past three or four games but it's a another ACL injury. I believe this is the fifth this season in this shortened schedule, and uh, just a devastating blow not only for Jamal Murray, of course, who who's in our thoughts, and and hopefully he recovers and and is back to the same level as soon as possible. But you know, also a devastating blow for for the Denver Nuggets organization. 
Yeah, absolutely. Not just this year, but when you factor in the, uh, the, the, you know, this time next year, they'll probably, the playoffs will be starting and, you know, ACL recoveries generally take about a year and it would be a lot to ask him to ramp up to like playoff speed, uh, you know, this time next year. Um, so, you know, you have MPJ, you have Aaron Gordon under contract for the year after this year. Uh, and then they become free agents, MPJ restricted, but, um, it definitely pushes back, you know, their dreams of contention for a little bit. He's their second best player. Uh, I didn't realize that there have been five ACL tears. That seems high. I'm not sure if that's high, but, you know, when you consider a guy like Murray who was playing uh, until late September um, because the Nuggets made the Western Conference Finals and then had the, uh, you know, the three-month turnaround, very shortened offseason, jam pack schedule, and, uh, you know, was dealing with knee issues. It, yeah, it's kind of a wake up call that like this season's kind of ridiculous. And I, you know, I, it's very on the nose, um, how, how maybe this wasn't the best idea in some regards. Right. Yeah. The, a lot of teams playing, you know, five games and in, in seven night stretches, it's just, uh, it's really tough. And, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of these plays happen, at the, at the very end of games, of course, Derek Rose's ACL tear was kind of in the, in the closing moments of what was a blowout in the near the end of the regular season that year. And this game with, with literally just about 50 seconds to go is when this happened. Uh, Just, just so unfortunate. And uh, as you know, as, as you said as well, that the, the timing of this just couldn't be worse because it, it really, it obviously takes him out for this year. So it really eliminates Denver as a, as a title contender, which I don't know about you, Scott, but I, I really felt Denver was, was rounding into form as being a legit contender. Yeah, I think so too. I think the, I was skeptical about the Aaron Gordon trade just because, you know, everyone has been kind of, uh, uh, clamoring for him to get to a contender for like the last what like basically since he got to Orlando his first year it seems like uh you know it's always like you know w- what would Aaron Gordon look like on a good team and, and my pushback would be like would always be like maybe some of the Aaron Gordon magic experience is on Aaron Gordon maybe he likes to dribble a little bit more than he should and for the beginning of that Gordon Nuggets stint, they were kind of shutting me up. It, it was like, no, everyone was right about Aaron Gordon. He just needed to be in a better context. And yeah, I was very excited to see where they would go from there. Um, they had just kind of had a 6-0, you know, a six-game winning streak before like that kind of phantom loss to the Celtics that was just a confluence of terrible things for them that, that we'll get into. Yeah. Uh, but, but um, outside of that, you know, it was extremely promising. Yeah. And, and again, you know, as I, as I was saying, you know, not only impacting this year, but then going into next year, the NBA is going to try to get the schedule back on track back at its normal time. And if you talk about 12, 12 months from when that ACL tear occurred, uh, is going to be basically the start of next season's playoffs. So, you know, if he can come back, yes, a little bit before that year timeline, if he's a little bit ahead of schedule, 
on his recovery. Yes, he could maybe get back with a few weeks to go in the season and ramp up, but it's it's a lot to ask for us to expect that like the bubble Jamal Murray is just going to show up at the end of next season even for Denver for them to compete next year. And, and there's a whole bunch of question marks over, you know, okay, well, if this year and next year is a wash, then, you know, where do you go contract wise? Because Michael Porter Jr. is going to be getting his uh, extension or, you know, that max off of his rookie contract. And then you've got Aaron Gordon, who is only under contract for this year and next. That was a big part of the trade is, oh, you know, he's not an expiring contract. We've got him for two years, but now both of those years are a little bit questionable as to, you know, what's going to come of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I, uh, to anyone who thinks that like, you know, Jamal Murray is, uh, you know, they can figure it out with Jokic and non-Murray pieces. I would just like, I know that he's kind of had an up and down year. I think some of that is fatigue from the bubble. Um, but even when he's not like bubble Murray, he's still, you know, they're clearly better with him. Um, that he provides like another kind of player who you have to focus on, which makes Jokic's job easier. Um, it allows them to stagger the two because I think one thing that's going to be huge, terrible for them is when Jokic sits now, uh, I think the offense is going to go be in shambles. Whereas with Murray, it can at least kind of be buoyed to an extent. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a Murray supporter. This was terrible for, me to I saw actually real time uh against the Warriors there like they were making the game interesting it looked like Murray had gotten fouled but then it was uh, Warriors ball so I was like didn't he just get hacked but really nobody touched him he just landed on that left knee funny uh and just kind of crumbled to the ground yeah it was almost like you know not a full euro step but he kind of stepped like outside of the shoulder width to his left leg and, and tried to push off that. And yeah, just gave out on him. Just so sad to see, but um, just quickly, you know, talking about the nuggets moving forward, of course, the team has to keep playing its games and they're going to be in the playoffs and, you know, how viable is this team? Obviously I think both of us agree that they're not a title contender anymore, but is this still a team with, you know, with Jokic, the, the likely MVP, a team that can, that can win around. Are they still at least a dangerous club heading into the playoffs? I, I, I mean, I guess they have a chance still. Uh, considering, I thought that like, you know, let's say they play the Mavericks, who are all of a sudden looking really good, right? And like, I, or like, you know, they might play the Lakers. That might be the four-five matchup. Um, the West is just like everyone says it. The West is brutal, and so. I would probably imagine that they would not be a favorite in whatever series uh, they play against, assuming the one seed is out of the question and they can't get like, you know, uh, I don't even know who's the eighth seed right now, but assuming they can't play that team, uh, I would say that they would be the underdog in whatever series they face, but maybe they'd have a chance in some. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much in agreement there. I think yeah, they're gonna they're, they're still gonna be competitive. I think with Jokic and Porter, this team's still gonna be as you said when at least when Jokic is on the floor, they're still gonna be dynamite offensively. Uh, but uh, the the other question mark, obviously, this makes it so that uh, guys like Monte Morris and Facundo Capazzo have to step up and and be more integrated into this offense. 
And we saw in that Celtics game, actually, as, as Murray was sitting out prior to, to tearing his ACL with right knee soreness, that uh, they actually started Compazzo. And I liked that look. I think, you know, Compazzo's weaknesses is he's kind of got a slow release. He's short. Um, and, you know, defensively, he can be taken advantage of just because of his lack of size. But in that, uh, you know, when he's in that starting lineup, I think a lot of his weaknesses are kind of taken care of because that starting lineup for Denver is so huge on the defensive end. And then also offensively, Jokic gets him these wide open looks that allows that slower release and allows him to get that off. Yeah. And I think the problem is both Monte Morris and Compazzo make a ton of sense with Jokic on the floor. Uh, You know, I I know they're both technically point guards, but when I, I think of Monte as kind of like a prototypical two guard in a point guard's body, a lot of the time. Um, but like, you know, it's still a very skilled prototypical two guard, one who can put the ball on the floor, make passing reads and stuff like that, but not the guy who you think of as initiating sets because he doesn't exactly have the, uh, you know, high level speed to gain separation. Um, and, or, or like, you know, make tough baskets or a- anything that can kind of, uh, force the defense's hand when he's initiating the play. Um, Compazzo very similar in that regard, you know, not an advantage creator. I almost feel like uh, the ideal without Murray, the ideal second string point guard is like a Lou Williams type or just anybody who can just, you know, assuming the offense isn't going to be great with Jokic on the floor, just any guy who can get you a bucket or just run a pick and roll and like, you know, either hit the roll man or pull up from mid range. And Monte has a little bit of that, but it doesn't have the same pop uh, as those microwave bench scorer guys might have. Yeah. And that's, that's the other issue with this timing as well, being after the trade deadline, after buyout season. Yeah. Like you're exactly right that, you know, if, if this had happened just a month ago, maybe Denver would go out and, and get somebody like, uh, like a Lou Williams. Uh, but uh, yeah, they can't do it now. And yeah, we'll see what Mike Malone does. I think one of the things he could consider is sort of staggering Porter and Jokic, but that comes with its own issues because they also play so well together. Um, so yeah, it, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see, but yeah, just a devastating blow and, and a bummer, you know, just as a, as a basketball fan as well, because Murray is, and, and that team is so fun to watch, but let's, uh, let's move on to the, the main content of this episode. Of course, Scott, a big, big Celtics fan. So we're going to be, we're going to be talking the Boston Celtics and they've been on a decent run as of late. They've moved up to fifth in the Eastern conference with a 29 and 26 overall record. They're currently, according to cleaning the glass, 11th in offensive rating, 13th in defensive rating and ninth in net rating at plus 2.3. But, uh, you know, one of the issues, obviously, Scott, that has plagued the team this year, and I, I was actually, when they were playing the, the Timberwolves this past weekend, I was listening to the broadcast, the, the Timber, the T-Wolves broadcast with Jim Peterson, and he was mentioning that, you know, this, this Celtics team has had the most player games lost due to COVID, and, you know, they've also had some, some a myriad of injuries with Tristan Thompson, you know, missing some time. Uh, Marcus Smart had that groin issue early in the season. So they they uh, they just have not been at full health for for much of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And then Kemba Walker missing like the first month of the season as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good um, point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I I was kind of lower than I think most Celtics fans on this team going into the season. I kind of surveyed you know the the non 
Bucks, um, Sixers teams at the time. I, I felt pretty good about those two teams. Um, looking kind of down the line, though, uh, about like, you know, then you have your uh, the Hawks look like they were going to be better. The Heat obviously had to be respected. Nets didn't have Harden at that point, but I still thought they'd be pretty good. Um, you know, like Pacers can never count them out. Uh, among that scrum, I felt like maybe Celtics were more likely to land in that five, eight range. Now I think that (laughs) I think that it's actually um, other teams have also kind of been kind of disappointing as well. So that's that's why we're still in that like five, four area. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to three. I think the bucks are too good. Um, But without Kemba, for the start of the season, I didn't know if we had like an offensive organizer. It was going to be a lot on Tatum and Brown's shoulders. Um, I think that Hayward it was in a very important piece for how our offense worked, uh, just in the sense that it's a lot of read and react motion style offense where people have to make quick decisions and be able to, you know, put the ball on the floor or, you know, make the quick pass or whatever they need to do. And Hayward's kind of <laughs> really, really good at that. So, I just wondered how we were going to fill that void. And I think that people didn't realize how much those two guys in particular uh, were kind of vital to our playoff success. I know that Tatum and Brown rightly get most of the attention, but some of the parts that allow Tatum and Brown to do their thing, uh, some of those parts that kind of operate in the background uh, weren't quite there for, for a lot of the season. Yeah, I mean, not having Hayward around, not having Kemba for a lot of the year, it's 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 resulted in a, a much lower free throw rate for the team. They were 10th in free throw late last season. This year, they're down to 22nd. Uh, you know, and another thing that I think is has uh, not been talked about enough is the league cracking down on those, you know, those plays that Brad Stevens likes to, to have his big man after the screen roll to the rim and, and essentially box out the help defender which manufactured paint drives and and rim attacks. And the NBA has really cracked down and started calling those offensive fouls. So for a team that already I think was, was kind of, you know, average to maybe below average at getting to the basket uh, the, the few way, the few times they were able to just through scheme, get to the rim. Those have been taken away. Yeah. I like to joke. I joke that that the NBA cracking down on that is why Tice got traded. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know if it's totally a joke. (laughs) It's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a bummer that, that, that is something that, uh, that has really hurt their offense. And I watch this team offensively and at times it's just kind of confusing what they're doing out there. I I saw a play, uh, you know, they, in that Minnesota game, they were running these actions where Jalen Brown would set a cross screen for Tristan Thompson and then come up to get the ball at the top of the key. And it's like, the defenses aren't worried about a Tristan Thompson post-up, so they're not going to take that cross-grade seriously. And, uh, it led to it led to a bunch of steals, but but yeah, there's just a there's just a general lack of drive and kick on this team. You know, Brian Scalabrini went on the low post like a month or two ago and and had a stat that was just absolutely shocking. Something to the effect of they only have they only average two hockey assists per game as a team, which you know is is just uh, it's hard to believe. And I think that's been the biggest driver of what's been going better for them recently. 
and kind of the reason they've been able to spray the ball around a little bit more, get those hockey assists is um, because I know that that was recorded, like you said, a few months ago, Uh, what's kind of changed and why their offense looks better is because they're getting out in transition more. Um, I think I wrote in my article about Jason Tatum that like, if you don't find those little pockets of space where he has like a, you know, a Jokic on him in transition or like a Lowry Markinen, as I clipped in the article, uh, if you don't find those little opportunities for him to rise up over the defender, you're kind of throwing away points. Uh, this is not a team that is going to be a half court juggernaut. We don't have the caliber of player. We don't have the uh, mega creator that portends to that. So any opportunity to get out in transition um, is going to be one we should take. I think that's where, you know, one, one way that Robert Williams has uh, obviously been a revelation in a lot of ways after trading Tice as the starter is just, he is going to get down the court quicker. Um, he's going to provide that rim pressure uh, when running, when running rim to rim. And that's going to kind of open things up on the perimeter um, for, you know, like a Tatum three or, uh, or, or Brown to like, you know, pump fake and get to his mid range game or smart to make those quick passes. Uh, whenever our offense is looking best, it's usually when we're getting out and running. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, one of the other issues offensively is the bench scoring They're in the bottom five in the league and in that, but hopefully the, the addition of Evan Fournier will fix that at least somewhat going down the stretch. Although Fournier's missed the last, the last uh, basically his whole last road trip they've been on. Um, But yeah, yeah, the, the thing that's, you know, I, I kind of anticipated the offensive drop-off with the the loss of Hayward and, you know, um, Kemba missing the start of the year. That the, the fact that they're 11th in offense isn't really a surprise to me. The defense is where I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't expecting that being down at number 13 on the defensive end. You know, a couple of stats that are kind of uh, evident as to why they're, they've, they've made a drop is you know they're they're 18th in effective field goal percentage on the on the defensive end and they were fourth last season and then also their transition defense they're 18th in points allowed per transition possession which uh, they were number one in the nba last year so some going from being pretty elite to pretty average in both of those categories and you know how much of this scott is you know you know daniel tice was such a was such a huge instrumental part of that defense being top five last year and you know not only has has he obviously been traded now uh for basically nothing i think it was for for tax purposes uh but uh you know he was also kind of had a a minimized role as well with the emergence of of robert williams early in the season i think it i mean i think it wasn't all just like tice being minimized um i well maybe it was if you kind of think of it the way I'm thinking about it, because he did play a lot, but when he was playing, he was playing alongside Tristan Thompson. Uh, we did like to go to this too big starting look. Um, there was a point, you know, a couple months ago where we were actually 20th in defense per cleaning the glass when I checked. And that was kind of shocking. You know, we've never really been a bad defensive team under Brad Stevens. And, I just think that so much of what the Celtics do that 
kind of separates them from other teams is how well they kind of scramble, uh, close out to shooters, um, fill those perimeter gaps, anticipate one pass away. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I see like Tatum uh, anticipate a pass before it's thrown um, because, you know, he sees like the corner shooter open, the guy on the wing catches it, tries to make that quick swing pass and Tatum is there before the pass gets there. Um, You just have a little bit less of that when you play two bigs, basically. Uh, um, you're, You're doing a better job to protect the rim, but I think that where the Celtics have kind of thrived over the past uh, couple of years is, uh, you know, a lot of people think of them as like a switch everything team, which they are at sometimes, but even if they're not switch everything, uh, their goal is to kind of preserve that perimeter shell, uh, whether it's through, you know, soft hedging and having Tatum rotate weak side. And then unlike someone like Tristan Thompson, who was rotating weak side when uh, he was playing alongside Tice, Tatum can help under the rim, and then, uh, you know, close out to a shooter, uh, fill those gaps on the perimeter. Um, so basically, we're at our best when we have four guys flying around the perimeter as opposed to three when you have to play Thompson and Tice together. Um, and then I think that's where Rob Williams has been a really good fit scheme-wise because he's also a guy who can kind of cover that ground uh, going from the interior to the perimeter. So... I want to say the defense has been around top 10 um, since the trade deadline. I think it's been around like five or six. So I think we're getting back to that, you know, defensive old. Um, it just, we didn't quite have the personnel to activate uh, what made us good in the past. Yeah. I, um, I despised those two big lineups. To be oh, they were the worst dude. I just didn't, I didn't understand it on either end of the floor, but I also, I also sympathized with Brad Stevens given, you know, he didn't have a lot, a lot of great options to go with there. No, he didn't. But my thing was like, at least like, you know, if we're going to be bad, might as well just like have Grant Williams be one of those guys, just because at least you can, you know, give him development situations as both a four and a five, but I guess we were just really trying to make the Thompson and Tice thing work. But like when I think of things that made me angry, <laughs> I guess about the first half of this year, uh, that would probably be the number one. Right. I mean, number, number two would be like those Tatum ISOs that kind of just, you know, are the result of a broken play that lead to no- nothing. Um, but it seems like, you know, between the revamped defensive scheme and the, willingness to get out in transition a lot of those two things have been minimized yeah let's let's get into you brought up Jason Tatum let's get into him because obviously he's the the best player on this Celtics team and you wrote a, a great piece on premium hoops about Jason Tatum that I actually uh, just read before we started recording here uh, and you know obviously Tatum having a a, a very memorable week with the 54 50- three-point outburst versus Minnesota hit kind of the, the game ceiling three against the Blazers last night. And, uh, you know, he, he's obviously continued to, to make these, these small steps. I guess the, the first question I have for you is, you know, the, one of the, one of my big takeaways reading your article was that, you know, Tatum kind of has two ways of attacking the defense really efficiently. And that's one is those, Uh, pick and roll off the dribble threes 
and then the the other being the you know kind of pull out near half court and get a get ahead of steam attacking the rim and you know defenses can almost with with those two plays kind of play one or the other because he he doesn't have the the range of Damian Lillard or Steph Curry when when he goes to half court and gets started and gets a screen a step or two inside the line uh, but then you know if he's if he's getting the uh, the screen near the near the three point line, he's not as effective than attacking the basket. Yeah, that's the exact conundrum that prevents Tatum from being like a heliocentric pick and roll player who you can just you know run forty percent of his possessions as pick and roll and figure the rest out later. Like he's not going to be a plug and play first option like a Luka Doncic because, like you said. Um, it's it, he doesn't have an answer for everything the defense throws at him um, in every situation. Basically, he doesn't have a counter to everything. Uh, you can kind of um, force him into some like like if he's initiating near 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 the arc, you can force him you know into a drive situation. If you throw help at him from weird angles, sometimes he doesn't decipher it in real time. Um, his vision breaks down to an extent. Uh, once he gets towards the basket, I think a lot of the great passes you see from him are, you know, along the arc for a reason. He's very good at, you know, manipulating the defense and sensing where the help's coming from um, behind the arc. It's just uh, once he gets kind of in, in the trees, that becomes a little harder for him. And like you said, you know, he, he is better at driving if he does have a head of steam. So you could operate with him off of DHOs or have him initiate the pick and roll a few steps outside the arc, but you know, his shot is more one that portends to uh, a, a, a sidestep or a, or, or, a, or a step back release. Um, he's not as potent, you know, driving forward, uh, you know, a few feet behind the arc and then pulling up from three. Um, and that makes his shot, you know, the part of the reason he's so effective on the pull-up is that his shot is so unblockable when he can just like stop on a dime, uh, step back a little bit and rise up really quickly. Um, I kind of talk about how strong his upper body is and how quickly, how, how natural and quick that motion is for him in my article. And you lose a little bit of that uh, when he's drifting forward uh, from starting the pick and roll a few feet out. Uh, you know, it, that, 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 that part of a shot that's like impossible to block isn't quite there because he's prone to rear view contests and things like that. Uh, you know, he, he's not creating separation off the defense uh, with this shot the same way. So, as a result, my article focuses a lot on like the other ways to use Tatum, whether it's through dribble handoffs, whether it's through off-ball screens, whether it's through like early action, whether it's through transition, because this is a guy who you have to get a little bit more creative with. I'm actually like something I've been thinking a lot about is like how do you use these stars who aren't the best, you know, who who aren't like the Luca or like the James Harden types who, you know, aren't the best passer on the teams but are the best scorer. Someone like, you know, I think Kawhi Leonard and Paul George fit this bill as well. Jalen Brown fits this bill as well. And it's like, you know, I think it becomes, you have to jump through a little bit more hoops, a few more hoops around them with the white, right teammates uh, run the right actions for them when your playmaking and your scoring aren't always coming from the same player. Yeah. And, you know, again, going back to the whole idea of, you know, he's, he's kind of predictable in terms of, okay, if, if the screen is being set near the three point line, he's, he's likely looking for that step back, uh, 
step back three. And then if the screen is set up high, he's, he's likely trying to attack the rim. That also makes his, his passing in a sense predictable because when he's looking for those step back threes, he's a, a lot of those passes he's kind of making at a, at a standstill. So he does, you know, there was one pass in, in your package and I've seen him make this pass a few times where he'll be kind of on the left side of the floor and he just off the dribble flings a left-handed pass, uh, a skip pass to a, to a corner shooter and hits him on the money. You know, he, he makes some, some dimes that you're like, wow, that was, that was excellent. But also because he's at a standstill and oftentimes, you know, if teams sort of load up against him to try to take away those shots, um, you, you'll see him try to attempt those those real difficult weak hand passes over a great distance, and, and guys are just able to read it and and get there and get steals. So he's he's an interesting player in terms of trying to sort of value or judge his passing skill because you know basically every game I watch him play, he has two or three you know absolute dimes and then a couple ones that are just truly perplexing where you're like there was absolutely no angle to make that pass and the other thing about his corner passes is they're not creating the same level of advantage as like a lebron pass where he forces the defense's hand at the rim he makes them do that rotation and then he's like spraying it out from near the from near the rim and you know contavious caldwell pope has a wide open three a lot of times it's not that wide open um, and it's on, you know, the guy in the corner to either get that shot up if he has space or kind of make the extra pass or uh, pump and go and drive to the rim. And that's where the Hayward types come in, the guys who can make all three of those decisions really quickly. Uh, and I think Fournier, a lot of people expect him, myself included, to be kind of a, uh, uh, I don't, you know, kind of like 70 percent, let's say, of what Hayward brought us. Um and I think that's why Romeo Langford has been actually playing over Aaron Neesmith. I talked about this with Nate on the North Station Hoops podcast, but like because Tatum's not creating those like drastic advantages you see from the mega creators, uh, it's on you know you want guys who can put the ball on the floor once they catch it, you know, who can extend the play a little bit. I think Neesmith is better than Langford at things that happen before the shot. You know, he's really good at running off of screens, squaring up. Um, the shot hasn't quite translated, but I think it will. Whereas Langford, you know, maybe the shot's a little bit more questionable, but once he does force that closeout, he's much more effective than Neesmith at putting the ball on the floor and making the quick decision. Oh yeah. We're going to be, we're going to be talking plenty about Romeo Langford here shortly. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great point that, you know, the comparison between like someone like Tatum and someone like LeBron who is constantly getting to the rim drawing, you know, sucking in the defense and then kicking it out, which causes not only wide open shots, but then, you know, the defense sprinting out. And, you know, when, when you're sprinting as a defender, it's really hard to effectively close out and stop the, the next, um, you know, drive and kick action. So, you know, with, with Jason Tatum, because a lot of his passes are coming from the free throw line extended, you know, he, he's creating occasionally, yes, he, he makes a really nice pass and creates a semi-open three-point shot, but oftentimes, yeah, it's not creating those opportunities where a guy can make a hard drive then because a guy is closing out really quickly at him. So, yeah, that that is that is a bit of a challenge with his overall sort of offensive profile. 
And, you know, another another podcast that, uh, you know, listeners of Duncan Dynasty know that Scott and I do every year is the top 30 players pod. And I believe both of us had Tatum in our top 15 at the start of this season. For me, Scott, he's basically basically in the same spot. I, I feel like he's still kind of in that, you know, sort of 12 to 15 range as far as what he's done this season. Would you agree? I think uh Maybe he's a little lower for me only because there's a few guys who I ranked lower who I would put up a little bit. Like Zion. Um, <laughs> Zion Williamson is definitely sniffing that conversation. I think uh, Kyrie Irving is a guy who we both, you know, it was a weird Brooklyn season. We kind of had him in like the 20s, or at least I did, where it's like he's obviously a, you know, a top 15 talent, but uh, you, you don't know what you're getting you know, after based on what we'd seen in Boston and his first season in Brooklyn, um, the vibes kind of felt weird. Obviously that's kind of secondhand information, but like, I think when watching Kyrie play, I'm like, yeah, he's better than Jason Tatum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a good point, but I guess even, even still, that's more other players out playing your expectations as opposed yeah, to Tatum it, it, sort of, you know, disappointing you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think of like, oh, I think I, I was like weirdly low on Paul George, definitely an overreaction to the bubble. Um, <laughs> I, I would put maybe just because Paul George has a little more overall shot making, uh, a little bit more um, kind of ability to convert those floaters, because I think that's part of the reason why Tatum struggles, uh, you know, when driving from the, you know, closer in like at the f- three point line. Um, I think part of the reason he has trouble converting in tight spaces uh, is because he doesn't really have a, fl- uh, a floater touch at all. Really. He's kind of been sub 40%. Whereas someone like Paul George is shoot is shoots around like 50% from floater and is also like just as much of a lightning rod from three. Um, I think Paul George is having a wonderful season and I've completely changed my tune on him. Uh, but if there is a kind of a, you know, difference between the two it's it's you know they're i think they're around the same echelon probably uh but that's a guy i had decidedly lower than tatum uh going into the season who i no longer do yeah and and again speaking of that uh, that top 30 players pod one of the things that i was pretty proud of on my list i certainly had some mistakes in there including having zion way too low uh was uh was putting Jalen Brown at number 24. I feel pretty good about that given the, the improvement and, and, and all the things that he's shown this season. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is very evident when you watch him play now is the game seems to have very much slowed down for him and his improved ball handling allows him to make moves in combination. You know, you'll see him use a crossover to initially beat the defender. And then when that guy recovers, he uses a spin move and then uses a jump stop to avoid the help defender. You know, he's, he's using two or three moves in quick succession. that just shows you a level of confidence and the game just slowing down for a guy in, in what is now is fifth year in the league. Yeah. You, you destroyed me on that one. Cause <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. When, when you had him number 24, uh, I think I came into the season a little too low on him. Um, but I think that where he's kind of really proven me wrong is, you know, his role isn't that much different than it was last year, right? Like he's not 
all of a sudden initiate, he's not tasked with initiating at a like pick and roll like 10 times a game or anything like that. You know, he's still very much like the second best scorer, but like the third, I guess, and you know, playmaker, if that makes sense, you know, although Kemba scores fewer points than Jalen, he's more often operating uh, with the ball at the start of the play. So where Jalen has just, completely exceeded my expectations is, you know, he's kind of raised what, what I believe the ceiling can be for his particular role. Like he's deadly accurate from every area on the floor. He was like, you know, he came into the season shooting like 70% from mid range for like the first couple weeks. Um, uh, That's obviously cooled down, but it's still wonderful. Uh, You know, and just when he attacks closeouts, like you said, if there's a help defender after he beats the initial closeout guy, uh, he's able to kind of sidestep him or like kind of do a quick in and out dribble going downhill or just, he never seems to lose the ball in those spaces. He just is so he has it on a string. And I, I wonder if he's like the best ball handler on the team, despite not despite being kind of like the third playmaker, if you will, um, where I think that he's kind of the reason I think he's kind of the third playmaker is, you know, while his passing has improved, it hasn't been like a gargantuan leap. I still think he's mostly a reactive passer. He's the type of guy where, um, like I said, in those attacking closeout situations, if he notices uh, where the help's coming from, if, if, you know, he's good at hitting Robert Williams for those lobs or like a quick dump off pass, uh, but he's not the kind of, he's not making those like cross court Jason Tate uh, reads. We kind of talked about Jason Tatum making at the level of the screen. Um, so basically what Jalen Brown has done has been like the best possible version of Jalen Brown, a version of Jalen Brown. I didn't even know, like could exist. Like he's kind of defied my kind of way of valuing these more dependent archetypes because he's just so outlier good at what he does. Yeah. And, you know, I agree in terms of, you know, when the team is at full strength, yes, he's still playing a a very similar role to what he had done the previous couple of years. But yeah, when Kemba was out for a while, when Smart was out, he did take on a little bit more of a an offensive load and and ran a little bit more in pick and roll and did reasonably well. Uh, As you said, there are still a lot of limitations with his passing. He's still a guy similar to Tatum. I think both of them are very much, you know, uh, score first guys and and passes really their sort of third option. Uh, but, but Brown, you know, I think he's, he's improved a little bit as a, as an off the dribble sort of pull up shooter, you know, um, you know, he's not taking four or five dribbles from half court and pulling up from three, but just, you know, a quick hard dribble to the left or right and pulling up. He's gotten more confident with that sort of a maneuver. Another thing he's really great at is when he drives, uh, he has he has a movie likes to go to where he sort of stops on a dime and then reverse pivots and and takes a sort of a fadeaway mid ranger and he seems really uh, really consistent with that shot even though it's a, a very difficult attempt. Yeah, I, that I can I know exactly what you're talking about when you say that, um, and, and yeah, that's just one of the many uh, kind of situations where off drives he kind of has a little bit of a change of pace, really good at kind of figuring out how much where the space is around him and how to manipulate that. Um, that all comes back to just his improved handle, which you kind of saw last year. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget this movie he had on Matisse Thibel, uh on Christmas day in 2019, uh, where he just kind of did like his mid range stop. And then he basically did the splits the other way 
and dribbled it through his legs and accelerated to the hoop. Uh, you saw a little bit of that last year, but it's kind of just, like I said, everything that Jalen Brown does, he's doing better this year. Yeah. He even had the, he pulled off the, uh, uh, if you, if you remember Scott, the, this is a, this is a famous sort of highlight real play from the 1995 Western conference finals between the Rockets and the Spurs where Hakeem along the baseline drives against David Robinson, does a little right-hand shot fake at the rim, then goes back and fakes the fadeaway jumper and then comes back with the up and under Jalen Brown pulled that off against Zeke Naji in the Denver game. I was like, okay, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's pulling off the, the, uh, the dream shake, or I guess not the dream shake, but he's pulling off some of the, the, the dreams best moves now. The, I, I could have sworn what you were describing was the dream shake. I just think that any, we could just call anything cool that Hakeem Olajuwon does the dream shake and leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's uh, he's been uh, he's been phenomenal. The leap he's taken has been uh, has been a big one and 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 crucial to the future of this Celtics team. Now that you can say, okay, this team legitimately has two All Star caliber players, and maybe in Jason Tatum in a few years, a guy that could ex- ascend to being a surefire top ten guy in the league. We'll have to wait and see, but certainly, uh, you know, having those two guys to build around for the long haul is a is a is a good starting point. But uh, next, I wanted to talk about Kemba Walker. You mentioned that, yeah, even though he's not scoring as much as Jalen Brown, he is really the uh, the number two guy in terms of offensive creation for this team. And I think a big part of why the, the Celtics haven't been quite as good offensively is because Kemba Walker just has not been the same player. Of course, he's missed. He missed a lot of the start of the season. He's not playing back-to-backs. And he, um, you know has uh, has taken fewer shots at the rim. You know, last year he was at 26% of his shot attempts were at the basket. This year that's down to 18%. In the mid-range, he shot 40% last year. That's down to 33%. And then also from downtown, he was at 38% last year. This year that's down to 35 So across the board, Kemba Walker has just not been the same guy so far. Yeah, and I think not only has he gotten a little bit better as time goes on as we get further removed from his injury, um, I think what's also helped is we're kind of changing what Kemba does in the Celtics offense. Like you said, you, you cited his stats last year. I know that Tatum was kind of our be- became our best player halfway through the season last year, but Kemba was still like the straw that stirred the drink a lot of the times. So, yeah. you know, and obviously Tatum has gotten better since then, but Kemba was what kind of made this offense go. Uh, We kind of talked about, you know, he did miss some time in uh, February 2020. And I was like, sure, you know, Celtics will be able to stay afloat when Tatum's making all these shots. But uh, there was like one game against the Rockets back when they were still good uh, in February of 2020, where Tatum, you know, went probably like eight for 24 or whatever he does uh, from the field. And all of a sudden we just didn't have anything. And that's where Kemba kind of came in in the past to help you know, create high level advantages for other people as well as himself. Uh, But that's not really his role this year. Uh, Like I said, it's been more of a fast break oriented team. Um, I think we're just trying to crowdsource the creation through scheme and quick decisions in motion rather than having Kemba operate at the level of the screen all the time. Um, And I think that's actually been when we're at our best. I think there's been a reimagining of Kemba's role in recent weeks. I think, 
Uh, I like to compare his arc to that of Mike Conley, where, you know, he comes into a team or he was on the Celtics for a while, but he was a, you know, kind of a dynamite first option, maybe not like on the level of LeBron, but like a viable first option, just like Conley was for the Grizzlies. Um, Gets hurt, you know, it's actually striking the comparisons. Um, And then when he comes back, doesn't have quite the same uh, juice to his on-ball game. And uh, I think Kemba actually has been, you know, similar speed-wise, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's just not quite the same. Uh, He's not hitting, like, the threes at the same rate. Uh, I don't know what it is, but uh, Kemba just doesn't seem to be that, like, all-star caliber potent creator, which is fine because we've kind of changed his role in the scheme, just like Jazz did with Mike Conley, where it's like, yeah, you can run a pick and roll still. We know you're really good, but we're not gonna we're we're gonna take some of that onus off of you. Um, we're going to have you operate in motion offense a little bit more. Um, it's not gonna be so Kemba centric anymore. And I think that's what he's benefited from, and that's why he's looked really good. And you know, he can still have those moments where he looks like he did last year, but it's not like the offense goes kaput when he, he's not on or he's not kind of creating. Yeah, and, and it's good that you brought up the fact that he has looked better as of late, and I've seen that as well. The stats I referenced were the, the full season stats. I imagine if I looked at the last 15, 20 games, those numbers would look better. Uh, and, and you've even seen that with his misses as well. I think as of late, uh, you know, you've seen a little bit more arc on those shots, a little bit more lift, and and those those misses are hitting the back of the rim, you know, as opposed to hitting the front of the rim. I think that's genuinely a good sign that he's starting to feel better and and uh, has a little bit more uh, pep in his step, but uh, yeah, he's obviously going to be, he, he's going to be a crucial element of this team doing anything come postseason. And, you know, their recent run moving into the fifth spot, we didn't really talk about this much, but I think that's a, that's a pretty decent place to be given that it seems like, yes, we've got a sort of a three headed monster at the, uh, at the top of the Eastern Conference. So getting in that 4-5 matchup allows you to avoid one of those top three teams. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, it would be nice to win a playoff series. Um, that's all I'm kind of hoping for this year. I know it's not going to have the same uh, bubble randomness. I think the top of the East got a lot stronger than last year. Uh, I think the Bucks, while their record isn't as good as last year, you know, you could make the case they're better equipped to, you know, withstand a playoff run uh, than they were last year, just because they have more looks they can throw at a defense or an offense rather. Um, And then, yeah, the Nets, the the Nets might just win the championship uh, easily. (laughs) Like there's a good chance that all this is for not in the Nets just cakewalk once they had their three stars healthy. Um, I still think, you know, the Lakers could give them a competition obviously, but we'll see. And then, yeah, a lot of the things that plagued the Sixers in the past just aren't this year. And I think I'm ready to respect them as like a legit contender, question mark, Um, but definitely better than the Celtics. And uh, so, you know, whether it's Atlanta or Miami or whomever, I just uh, I hope we can win that series. And then maybe uh, I, I never expected us to win the championship this year. I just wanted it to be like a good year for the vibes. And my biggest concern was that things were going south to the point where, you know, it was creating unhappiness, whether like it's through, you know, requiring a coaching change or um, having to, you know, trade somebody down the road. Or I just didn't want any of that because I think that if we can just stay the course, 
there is a team that I really like here. I think it's not perfect. I, I think we need to find uh, somebody to replace Kemba eventually because I, you know, he's much older than the rest of the core, but we can figure that out later. And he's still a pretty good player at, uh, for the time being. Um, but I just wanted nothing to kind of shake the morale of the core. And I think that winning a playoff series would do wonders for that morale. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, part of the excitement about this season is, yeah, see, you know, this people have to realize that the Celtics are an incredibly young team. They've got a, a lot of, of young players on rookie contracts on this squad, given that Ainge had just so many picks over the last few years. And one of those guys that uh, we'll, we'll get to all these guys, but one of them that uh, is probably the most exciting has got to be Robert Williams. I know a guy that you like. Uh, in that Houston game, he nearly uh, pulled off a triple-double, had, I, I think, eight assists in that game. So, you know, he shows off some passing. He's obviously got that uh, vertical spacing element with that elite athleticism. And, uh, you know, he's uh, he's continued to, to grow into the role this year of that uh, starting center. And the scariest thing for other people is when he becomes a good defender. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, like, he's like a fine one at times right now. I still think the offensive feel is way ahead of the defensive feel, but this is something I've kind of harped on for a lot of guys uh, is sometimes the offensive feel comes first. Um, and if they have that length and athleticism, then trust that the defensive feel will come along. Uh, I think we're seeing a guy like PJ Washington, who kind of looked out of place at times um, similar to Rob Williams has really become a better defender. Or how about Deandre Ayton? Yeah, DeAndre Ayton is another one where, like, you saw that similar uh, passing out of the post. You know, Ayton, uh, for as polarizing as he is, has kind of that special feel on offense for a center a lot of the times. Um, some some wish he, he would have enough feel to not take as many uh, post fadeaways, but he's kind of cut that out of his diet this year. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a great example of, like, if a guy understands the angle, sometimes you see it on offense before you see it on defense. Um, just because of what they're prioritized, what's prioritized for them at lower levels. You know, sometimes they are taking on more offensively a lot of the time, but once they realize that the way they can affect the game is through defense, um, then that maturation process really uh, oftentimes comes to fruition because, you know, if you're Rob Williams, you, you have this kind of passing arsenal, but where you can really be the most impactful is as kind of a defensive anchor. And I think he's already realized that and is uh, making strides on that end. And it's, it's only going to get better. Well, yeah, that's why I mentioned, you know, the whole them trading Daniel Tice and, and, you know, sort of uh, going with, with Robert Williams, I think, as you said, it's probably, you know, improved them on the offensive end. Although I think Tice is an underrated offensive setter as well. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really hurt them on the defensive end, at least, uh, you know, in the present, but, you know, it, it, certainly he's got the athleticism, he's got the tool set to get better, but right now he's a little bit jumpy. He's not, uh, you know, his positioning isn't, uh, isn't great. And, you know, he's a little bit foul prone as well, as we saw in that Philadelphia game where he, uh, against Embiid, which is a tough cover for, for any center, mind you, but, uh, fouled out in, in 14 minutes. It kind of reminds me what we have going on right now is what the uh, 28, 2019 Brooklyn Nets had, where it's like they had the young center, Jarrett Allen, starting, um, but they also had the Ed Davis type to handle those more physical matchups to avoid fouling, uh, you know, just as another body out there. Um, 
And so, you know, when the Nets around that time played Sixers, Embiid would just kind of cook Jared Allen for two early fouls. And then Ed Davis would be playing, you know, 20, 25 minutes a game. And, you know, against, uh, let's say, the Timberwolves, I think it was, Tristan Thompson played 27 minutes a game just because, you know, Towns can kind of cook you in any way imaginable. Um, so there have been games where Robert Williams plays a little bit more. There have been games where Thompson comes off the bench and ends up playing a little bit more than Rob. Um, so I think it's a, I think it's a good developmental, uh, situation for him where he can, you know, still be the starter, but if he has those kind of nightmare defensive nights, which he's prone to against those really post score scoring, uh, heavy centers, um, then you do have Tristan Thompson who, uh, obviously thrives in those matchups. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, they, um, they, they made a big investment in, in Thompson, essentially saying that we would rather have Thompson than, than Tyson, uh, in, in those sorts of situations. And, uh, you know, that, that might be, that might be accurate that Thompson is the better, you know, tougher post defender in, in those duels. But, uh, I think basically any center they have is overmatched in, in, in a lot of those matchups. But, uh, you know, the, the other young big that this team has, and we referenced him earlier in Grant Williams, he's kind of, to me, he's the opposite of Robert Williams, where he seems, he seems, you know, ahead of the curve on the defensive end and maybe is still trying to figure out ways to impact the game more on, on the offensive side. But, uh, you know, he has, some, he has some really nice moments. I thought he looked excellent in that Knicks game defending Julius Randle. You know, he's got that perfect size and, and lateral mobility to deal with those big, quick forwards. And honestly, I think he'd be further along offensively on a different team. Um, I think the Celtics have asked Grant Williams to do a lot of floor spacing, which has not always been his forte. He's shot it better this year, but you know, probably around like a 33 to 35% shooter for his career, if I had to predict. Um, So never going to be a huge weapon for him, probably on low volume. Uh, I think he would be best offensively as kind of like a short role creator, but because of the Celtics configuration, because of Rob Williams, because, you know, we have so many guys who already assume a lot of creation ability on the perimeter. Uh, Grant is often asked to stand in the corner uh, or something like that. So I think you were not really utilizing him properly on offense, which is maybe part of the reason uh, that he doesn't look as far along there. Um, you do see some quick decision-making when teams respect his three-pointer, which is happening more often. Uh, there was that play uh, where Tatum threw a skip pass and then Grant kind of caught it in the air against the Blazers and immediately rifled it to Rob Williams under the hoop. Um So I, you have a lot of plays like that, but they're kind of few and far between. He's not really a feature point of the offense um, only because that's not what the scheme necessarily calls for. So let's say Indiana drafted him 18th and he was like the backup Sabonis. Um, If he's doing those DHOs a ton and just, uh, you know, operating off short rolls in Indiana, I think we're talking about a guy who like a team would teams would be like looking to trade for as their starting power forward, because I think he is that good. He has that level of upside. It just hasn't quite been extracted on the offensive end in Boston. But like you said, the defense is where his IQ shows up on a possession to possession basis. He is a little bit mistake prone, but that's often from trying too much, um, you know, kind of galaxy braining certain things. It almost reminds me of like a big man version of Thibault where it's obviously not to the level of Thibault because nobody is, but he's like 
sometimes trying to still figure out how much he can and can't get away with. And he'll get called for like cheap fouls or overcommit sometimes, but you, you know that his, his head was in the right place. Yeah. I, uh, I know the exact play you're talking about against the Blazers. Yeah. That was a, that was an excellent pass. And yeah, he, he shows good, good vision as a passer. He's unselfish. And yeah, like uh, even if he were say in golden state and got to be in that Draymond role. Oh like, yeah. You, you would be like, they're set, you know, Draymond, obviously it's a downgrade, but like you can bring him off the bench. I, I think that maybe this is a hot take, but like, let's say for some reason the Celtics wanted James Wiseman. Would you do like Grant Williams and Romeo Langford for Wiseman as, as the Warriors? I don't want to like pile on the guy. He just tore his meniscus, but oh, I, thinking I, in a heartbeat, I am very <laughs> low on James Wiseman. Yeah. And I hope obviously he recovers and can, you know, kind of, uh, right the ship on what was pretty a pretty disastrous rookie year being thrown into the fire like that. I think it was an unfair development situation for him. But considering when the Warriors want to win, uh, a guy like Grant Williams would make a lot more sense for them. Right, and yeah, so you know the the thing that's kind of interesting one of the one of the issues with this Celtics offense, you know, moving going into this year, you know, with the loss of Hayward, you wonder, oh man, does this team this team just is not a very good passing basketball team? But all of a sudden, you start to see, okay, Robert Williams has got some passing chops, Grant Williams has got some passing chops, and so my question for you, Scott, is moving forward. You know, obviously, your your core two guys are, are going to be Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and we've already mentioned sort of some of their passing limitations. But do you think the Celtics can get back in a few years to a top five offense with sort of maybe an over-reliance on passing with their big men and maybe, you know, their their key primary initiators not being the best at, uh, at passing the rock? This question is something I've been thinking about quite a lot. I've been watching the Clippers. Um, I think that they are the blueprint to, you know, having a good offense when your stars aren't necessarily the best, like, you know, high-level passers. I mean, obviously, George and Kawhi are very good at that, but, you know, they're not as good of a passer as some of the other guys, uh, some of their peers, right? Uh, so I've been watching them since post the Rondo trade. Uh, I think having Batum, is just it just kind of makes everything easier. He's great at moving the ball. Uh, they've been doing a lot of five out with Rondo um, on the floor. So instead of relying on a guy like Rondo to create advantages. It's just the floor is already so spread out that those driving lanes are naturally there. If you have a bunch of ball movers who can make quick decisions. Uh, so uh, they're a team I really look at for how the Celtics could ideally, uh, you know, become a high powered offense without, you know, whatever, you know, I think Kemba does is a better creator than anybody on the Clippers, not name. Georgia Kawhi, but let's say they don't have a Kemba in the future. How can they kind of, uh, you know, parlay all that passing and crowdsourcing of creation into a high level offense? I look at a team like the Clippers for that answer. Yeah. The, 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 the main challenge for Boston to get to a Clippers level of offense is that that Clippers team has what, like, uh, I, I'm not looking at their stats at the moment, but I feel like they have nine guys shooting over 40% from three. And maybe that's, yeah. And maybe that's a reason that that's not really an instructive example. Maybe 
they are more of a top 10 offense than a top five offense, or in this case, a top one offense. Um, once the shooting cools down, um, maybe the expected value of some of those shots isn't as high. They're just making a ton of them. Uh, but I think they're a good example of, and this is actually something uh, that my friend Henry Ward has written about how he wants to see fewer pick and rolls, fewer DHOs in you know, NBA offense and just have more five out, more motion offense, more read and react and, you know, taking advantage of the driving angles that will naturally be there as a result. Um, and I think that that's how the Celtics will best reach that level if they don't have like this, you know, high level pick and roll player, which Tatum is at times, but also isn't at times uh, for, for various reasons. Yeah, so I've just got a couple more players that I wanted to discuss before we end here. Uh, obviously I, I said I wanted to discuss Romeo Langford because I've always liked him. I think he's a, a fascinating prospect. He's shown uh, really good defensive instincts as a help defender. He's got pretty good lateral quickness, decent size and strength. Uh, the, you know, are there any, do you have any question marks about Romeo Langford on the defensive end at this point? Um, not really. I did at first because I always make this analogy. Um, I made it in the sense and scalability podcast where uh, I differentiate between crawling and walking as an off ball defender. Yes. I think R- R- Romeo Langford was really good at the crawling aspect. He knew exactly where to be in a clean scenario, but when the play got a little scrambled up, he sometimes was a step late uh, to detect what's going on. This is something I noticed as far back as college. There was like a play against when he was playing Iowa. I don't know if you're as familiar with college basketball, but um there was a fast break and he was looking to stop ball. He was the only man back. Um, but then all of a sudden he, uh, you know, the guy with the ball stops at the arc and passes to Jordan Bohannon, who is this was like this 23 year old point guard for Iowa lights out shooter. Romeo doesn't even realize that like, Hey, maybe he should go to contest Bohannon since he's the only man back. Um, and his teammates will kind of recover and get the other guy who's back. Um, so he kind of just doesn't is really late to close out to Bohannon in that situation. That's more of a, a less clean scenario. He is not as quick, not as quick to like diagnose something in real time and react accordingly. But I think that just comes, you know, assuming you're not like a Matisse Thibel or whomever, or like a Franz Wagner who's a guy in this draft who I think kind of has that preternatural help defensive instinct, uh, which I don't think Romeo quite is, but he's a guy who is very disciplined once he does, learn those rotations. And uh, I think that it's just a matter of time before he does get better in those situations. I think he's a guy who just needs more reps. He needs more experience to be able to react properly in those situations. And uh, I I have faith. I think he's a pretty quick learner. I've already noticed less and less of those situations where he just looks lost on a scramble. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, that's that's been the one thing I've noticed as well. It's sort of, yeah, more like situational awareness defensively. I I forget (laughs) I forget which game it was, but it was in the past week and a half where the Celtics were up near the end of the game. They threw out an all-defense lineup. Langford was out there, and they were up by, I believe it was like, uh, you know, five or four or five points. And obviously, they they should have been in no threes defense, but Langford just kind of lays off the shooter and allows right. him to pull up and take it. And Brad Stevens calls timeout and just like scolds him basically. What are you doing? <laughs> Um, so I, I do notice that on occasion, but again, those are, those are things that I think can be pretty easily cleaned up. He is still incredibly young, 
but uh, he's a guy that I really like. And offensively, you know, he's he's got a ways to go, but I think he can he can craft out a role as as a guy that can make some shots occasionally, can run in, get some offensive rebounds, make some timely cuts, and just do enough to be a, a positive contributor. Yeah, it'll depend on whether you know defenses respect the shot. Um, funny enough, I think he's better at shooting off the dribble than off the catch. Uh, it kind of lets him load into his natural form. But if he can get that shot off the catch down, that's where he's going to be potent. Just because, like I said, Celtics need guys who can extend the play with like a quick closeout attack or pass. And I think he has both of those to his game. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, bending the defense towards him with his shooting gravity. Um, but if he can, that's a very nice fit in what we're already trying to do by crowdsourcing the creation, having multiple decent passers on the floor who also are comfortable putting it on the, on the deck if they need to. Yeah. All right. So uh, one last guy I wanted to talk about is, uh, is Peyton Pritchard and uh, you know, uh, a rookie this season out of Oregon, a late first round draft pick, but a guy that, uh, you know, seems wise beyond his years. He, uh, he can knock down the shot. He can handle the basketball some, and uh, he, he already has, uh, in my mind, a lot of those sort of small guy tricks in his bag. Uh, you know, those sort of wrong-footed layups is the, is the main thing that comes to mind where he can, he can get to the rim and get it off the glass with a guy trailing from behind. But, uh, you know, he's a guy that I think has really impressed, and he's somebody that I, I think Danny Ainge sort of missed on that Carson Edwards pick, but he wanted that sort of small guard that can really hound you on the defensive end and hit shots on the offensive end. And Pritchard seems to, uh, to fit the bill. And maybe the reason he seems wise beyond his years is because despite being a rookie, he's actually older than Jason Tatum. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 23. uh, Right. I, I believe. Yeah. I would say that like, you know, if this was a 19 year old coming into the league, I'd be like, there's our next Kemba, but yeah, <laughs> no, serious. Like he's been excellent for a rookie. Um, but I'm not expecting him to like make these gigantic leaps we saw from like Jason and Jalen because they came into the league when they were 19. Uh, but we're talking about the 26th pick in the draft and any guy who cracks your rotation is a win at that spot. And I think right. Peyton has already done that. I, I, I trust him in a playoff rotation. Uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, obviously he wasn't huge on my radar cause I'm more of like a part-time draft guy. Um, and he's not somebody who was getting any fanfare really, but, uh, I was kind of perplexed by that pick as a result, but I've been obviously very pleased with him. Well, Scott, I know you have to go soon, but, uh, is there uh, anything else you wanted to discuss briefly before we wrap up? Um, no, I mean, uh, I think this is good. Yeah. Uh, I got all my Celtics takes off. I think I'm going to be writing about uh, that kind of idea of crowdsourcing creation, whether it's through the Clippers or Celtics, because I'm just fascinated. Like for so long, we felt we've been led to believe that you need this, like, you know, top five player, like this LeBron, this, this James Harden uh, monolithic creator to like do anything in the playoffs. And it's like, is that the case? You know, I'll be interested to see how the Utah Jazz do where they crowdsource so much creation. I'll be interested to see how Phoenix do where they don't necessarily have that one guy, but they have two guys. And, you know, does that synergy portend to having, you know, that same effect? So I guess I'll be interested to see 
um, how that plays out. But I was going to analyze the Clippers. You know, maybe you could say Kawhi is that A1 creator, but they don't really have that Lowry type next to him that I think unlocked a lot of his skills. So like, how do they go about fielding a, you know, contender worthy offense? Um, And I think the Rondo trades actually been awesome for them. I know a lot of people were clowning Clippers for giving up Lou Williams and two second round picks, maybe on paper, that's silly, but I think he's kind of just what the doctor ordered off the bench. Yeah. I I wish doc rivers was still the coach because then I could make a a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, I, I need to hone in on the Clippers. I haven't watched them a lot since they since they got Rondo. Oh, they're super that. fun, man. Uh, yeah. The only player that I don't like watching on their team is Marcus Morris. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think too many people enjoy uh, enjoy watching Marcus. But even even he's looked okay. Like when they bring him out as a stretch five, I guess in those like Rondo and shooting units, then, then he, then his isolation makes sense. Cause he's got like a big on him and it, he can kind of do something with him. Yeah. I mean, I've always liked him as a player, but yeah, he is kind of boring. And uh, I, I just think that it's kind of adding too much isolation to what's already a very isolation heavy team with the Clippers. I kind of wish Batum played more with the starters um, just because he's so good at facilitating that ball movement. Um, I hope that Ibaka, is able to kind of get back to where he was uh, once he comes back from injury. Uh, I actually, they went from being like a team I kind of loathed last year to like, now that they're kind of trying all this new stuff. And I think Ty Lu has long been an underrated coach. Um, I actually kind of love them this year. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're an interesting test case. And, and yeah, they obviously went into this off season thinking they need to upgrade the passing, which yeah, the Batum addition helped. Uh, obviously the Rondo addition will help with that. And we'll see if that's enough playmaking for, for a team, as you said, with their primary initiators, not quite, uh, quite having the, the passing chops that you would want, but uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting test case moving forward for the Celtics as well. And it'll be fascinating to see how they build going into the future um, you know, figuring out who, who's the the next Kemba Walker for this group, and uh, and obviously the moves around the the fringes of the rotation. But uh, Scott, this was this was a heck of a lot of fun as always, uh, and thanks so much for for coming on and, and taking the time. Of course, Garrett. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review preferably five stars and uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show that would be much appreciated we are also on spotify so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well if you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast you can find me on twitter at garrett bougay that's g-a-r-r-e-t-t-b-u-g-a-y i will be uh tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine including soccer and film and television so uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the the course of the week you can find me there you can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at Corbin NBA that's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A so uh, he uh, he does a does a good job on Twitter as well he's very active I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, 
he uh, he does some some fun work over there. So so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for for listening, and have a great rest of your day. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.